I'd like to thank Susan uh, and the Center for International Studies and International House uh, for organizing uh, this evening's uh, program. Evelyn Tennant has been particularly helpful to me uh, in getting this going. Uh, <coughs> there are uh, three of my books over there, uh, but the one I'm talking about tonight is uh, something different. I am a co-author with uh, two other people on a forthcoming book called Inventing the Axis of Evil. And the title of my lecture tonight uh, is also the title of my contribution to that volume. And the title, for those of you that didn't get an outline, we had about 50 outlines, but I think they're all gone. Uh, the title is Decoupled from History, North Korea in the Axis of Evil. <clears throat> it's pretty funny. I, I got an advance from the new press for the North Korea book. Uh, which came out in November, and this other book was following very closely on its heels, and they didn't give me any advance. And then when I sent in my essay, they suddenly, almost by return mail, gave me an advance, and I said, well, why did you give me the advance now? And they said, oh, we thought you were just going to recycle something from your North Korea book uh, for this Axis of Evil book. So I suppose it shows what publishers think about authors. Uh, anyway, uh, it, it's it's a except for two or three paragraphs, uh, an entirely uh, different uh, argument. And I, I wrote it last summer and early fall uh, as the occupation of Iraq was unfolding. And one of the curiosities of the commentary uh, about the occupation of Iraq is that the administration wanted to compare what was going on to uh, our occupations of Japan and West Germany, uh, democracy was going to flower in Iraq just as it did in Japan and West Germany, and the opponents of the war uh, constantly referred back to the quagmire of Vietnam. And with the exception of a couple of editorials that I wrote, I, I saw nobody ever refer uh, to the occupation of South Korea. Many Americans don't realize that uh, well before the Korean War, the United States set up a military government uh, in South Korea, uh, ran it from 1945 to 48, and it had a, a very deep impact on post-war Korean history. And there are many things about the Iraq occupation that uh, are directly comparable to our occupation of Korea. Uh, we tried to set up a, a governing commission uh, in Korea almost immediately after arriving. Uh, we re-employed police and military who had uh, been with the Japanese occupying forces before 1945. <clears throat> we brought back an exile who had more of the American point of view, otherwise known as Syngman Rhee, who had been in the United States 40 years uh, and sought to uh, essentially make him our man in Korea, much like Mr. Uh, Chalabi uh, was brought back by the Defense Department uh, uh, at the beginning of the occupation of Iraq. But I'm, I'm particularly interested in pointing out that that occupation began in September 1945, and with the exception of one year, uh, American combat forces have been in South Korea ever since. 37,000 of them are there today. And if our occupation of Iraq were to somehow diabolically follow suit to what has happened in Korea in the last six, six decades, the country would be divided uh, probably into three. Uh, instead of into two as uh, parts as, as regards Korea. Uh, a civil war would erupt a few years later. The civil war would kill lots of people but not really settle the basic issues. 
uh, and sometime in the 2060s, when many of you in this room are older than I am now, uh, <clears throat> we'd still have 37,000 uh, American troops in, in Iraq. So our, our involvement with Korea uh, is a real warning as to what could happen in Iraq, and there are a number of lessons that come out of it. Uh, one is that North Korea was a problem back in 1945, and it remains a problem today, and we don't still have a solution for it. And another war uh, could happen uh, in Korea. <clears throat> another lesson, uh, it seems to me, is uh, how easy it is to win some battles as a superior country, a, a country with superior military force, and how very hard it is to win the peace. Uh, Americans are rather good uh, at the use of military force, and I think rather bad at the political arrangements that come after uh, and are essential to winning the peace. So <clears throat> I have about 17 points for attention on my outline. I don't know if I'll get to all of them, but that uh, was a particular point uh, I wanted to make. Uh, a second observation has to do with uh, the Korean War itself. Uh, experts, specialists on the war, uh, are very well aware, particularly since a lot of secret documentation uh, came out on the Korean War, that there were essentially two Korean Wars from the American standpoint. There was a war to defend the South against uh, the North Korean invasion in the summer of 1950, uh, which went to a fairly quick conclusion after the landing at Incheon uh, and a reoccupation of South Korea by American and South Korean forces. Uh, if the war had ended there, uh, we would have essentially uh, implemented the containment doctrine that was at the core of our Cold War policies. Uh, the country would have remained divided. Uh, some tens of thousands of Koreans uh, and a few thousand Americans would have died. Uh, but the war didn't end there. The Truman administration made uh, a very conscious decision to pursue a liberation of the North or a rollback, as it was called at the time. Uh, this failed, of course, and, and was blamed on General Douglas MacArthur, but when the documents uh, came out of Washington 30 years later, it was apparent that Harry Truman and Dean Acheson, uh, the Secretary of State, were the people who made uh, the decision to try and liberate North Korea uh, and basically engage in regime change. That led to a, a complete debacle. Uh, essentially made it impossible for Harry Truman to run for re-election in 1952. We got into a war with China. Uh, we lost another 30,000-odd soldiers. Millions of Koreans died. And that war ended essentially uh, on an undulating line close to the 38th parallel where the war began. That particular foreign policy crisis deeply shaped American reactions to later foreign policy crises. The debacle in North Korea was the fundamental reason that Lyndon Johnson never brought himself uh, to invade North Vietnam and go to the heart of en enemy power in the Vietnam War uh, because he feared uh, getting into another war with China and remembered the political consequences of Truman's uh, march into North Korea. Uh, in the Bay of Pigs, uh, the so-called liberation of Grenada, you have an implementation of a rollback policy, but on a very small scale. Uh, Grenada in 1983 was the size of Martha's Vineyard. North Korea is a very big country, uh, and we uh, used our nearly the full force of the American army to occupy it in 1950-51. <coughs> 
essentially you had a, a bipartisan commitment to containment after the Korean War that was only interrupted by uh, covert actions until George uh, Bush decided to launch a preventive or preemptive war against Iraq uh, and send again uh, an enormous American force in uh, in search of a liberation of the Iraqi people and, and regime change. So the Korean War uh, was a a fundamental crisis at the beginning of the Cold War uh, and not until March 2003 did another president try to use armed force to knock over an ongoing regime uh, and we're still living with the consequences of that. <coughs> After the Korean War, the United States and North Korea were locked in a, a daily struggle, a 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week struggle uh, that those who, who monitored it uh, up along the DMZ and in our military bases knew very well, but that tended to recede into the background for most Americans uh, who were always surprised uh, to find that we still had so many troops in Korea. Uh, from, in other words, after the Korean War, uh, you had a quotidian struggle uh, known to experts, but one that receded into the background until the Cold War ended, the Soviet Union collapsed, and North Korea uh, became an object of American attentions because of worries that it's, it was developing nuclear weapons. We had a big nuclear crisis from 1991 to 94, which nearly resulted uh, in the Second Korean War in June 1994, uh, but in fact was solved through uh, a major diplomatic agreement in October 1994 that froze the North Korean nuclear facility uh, at Yongbyon. But I, I would date the beginning of this crisis from the end of the first Gulf War uh, in the spring of 1991. I have a habit of reading the New York Times every morning. Uh, I don't really like to begin my day until I've digested that newspaper and Stephen Kinzer is almost like uh, somebody I, I feel uh, might be a family friend. I've read so many of his articles over the years even though we just met tonight. Uh, but I remember one day sitting in my library office reading the Times and Leslie Gelb, who was the foreign affairs uh, op-ed writer at that time, now it's Tom Friedman, then it was Leslie Gelb, he wrote a column called The Next Renegade State. And he said, well, we've just uh, kicked Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait. Uh, this is a vicious dictator with a million men under arms and weapons of mass destruction. That WMD is not a new term, uh, but it was one used uh, for decades. Uh, and used in this particular context. A rogue state, a million men under arms, a vicious and brutal dictator, and weapons of mass destruction. And that next renegade state, according to Mr. Gelb, was North Korea. And when I read this, I remember reading it over and thinking, you know, I consider myself an historian of modern times, but I feel like an historian of antiquity or something, uh, or a paleontologist. Uh, Somehow Mr. Gelb doesn't seem to understand that North Korea has been our daily enemy since 1945 uh, and there is this daily confrontation uh, along the DMZ, a very tense place with uh, well over a million people under arms. And he plucked North Korea out of that situation, which I know so well and people who study the situation know so well, and suddenly merged it with Iraq and Iran. Uh, Iran was another rogue state possibly seeking weapons of mass destruction. So 
the discourse of George Bush about rogue states and axis of evil and uh, weapons of mass destruction is not something either George Bush or his father invented. It was a bipartisan invention after the end of the Cold War with Leslie Gelb, widely considered a liberal commentator, uh, in the lead, so to speak. Now, one of the uh, aspects of our conflict with North Korea over the past 60 years that isn't so well known is that the U.S. surveils North Korea by all means necessary. We essentially lack good spies inside North Korea, and so we send satellites to take pictures. Uh, we have infrared monitoring so that when a car starts up on the streets of Pyongyang, we, we can know it if we're interested in that car because heat rises. We, we monitor the air for krypton gas, which is given off when uh, people reprocess plutonium. Uh, we electronically monitor uh, North Korea to the degree that uh, I've been told by some people that we can monitor conversations in limousines uh, passing through Pyongyang. Uh, I don't know if that's true, but all I know is we don't have a way of really penetrating the regime itself. During the Korean War, we instantly gained control of the air, uh, and North Korea recognized uh, a principle at that time that later was identified with so-called smart weapons. And that principle is that anything that can be seen on the ground is probably going to be lost. And so the North Koreans began building underground during the Korean War and after, and they now have one of the most highly developed uh, underground societies on the face of the earth. They have something like 15,000 underground facilities of a national security nature. But uh, particularly after the U.S. installed nuclear weapons in South Korea in 1958 and kept hundreds of nuclear weapons in South Korea for the next uh, 30 years, uh, Kim Il-sung quite openly in the early 60s said we have to continue building underground and deeper underground because it's our only defense against nuclear attack. <coughs> so we engage in a kind of international proctology with North Korea, uh, and the North Koreans engage in, in showing us things uh, above the surface, so to speak. During the Carter administration, the size of the North Korean army was suddenly expanded by 30 percent by the intelligence uh, agencies. Jimmy Carter later thought that was uh, done so that he, his troop withdrawal program from Korea could be defeated. Uh, but in any case, they essentially took the existing evidence and reinterpreted it. They would look at a, a North Korean tank and say, well, we thought that was a wooden model, like the wooden mock-ups they're always making to putting on the ground to make us think they have more tanks than they really do. And then it turned out that was a real tank. So this, this sort of, uh, uh, of game uh, went on for decades. <coughs> But North Korea also built its Yongbyon nuclear facility above ground. And from 1991 to 94, they, uh, 1989 to 94, they uh, had their reactor up and running. Uh, 1989, they took fuel rods out of it. They created a waste site. Uh, and that would be the place where we would need to go to see how much plutonium they've actually reprocessed from the 1989 unloading. Then they put concrete on top of the waste site and built a military building on top of it and therefore it was off-limits to United Nations inspectors when they came to Yongbyon. All of this was done, though, above ground, and in a very important far, uh, uh, article in the Far Eastern Economic Review by Nayan Chanda in 1993, he, he did a mock-up of what satellite pictures showed about 
creation of the waste site, the covering up of the waste site, and all of this done in plain view. Furthermore, the North Koreans gave the UN a, a small sample of reprocessed plutonium, which the UN inspectors then sent to the Energy Department in Washington, and the Energy Department uh, concluded that the North had, had been seeking uh, to reprocess plutonium in the interest of weapons-grade plutonium. Uh, one of the things that it took me a long time to figure out, it really didn't occur to me for years, uh, uh, is that uh, North Korea wanted us to see all these things. They wanted to strengthen their hand at a bargaining table by making us think they were going in the direction of nuclear weapons. Uh, they didn't make a mistake giving the plutonium to the UN inspectors, but they knew it would go to Washington for examination and they knew what the result would be. Uh, but uh, fundamentally, I think, and I've always thought, uh, that if they wanted to build a nuclear arsenal, they would have done it underground the good old Israeli way. Uh, the Israelis built their nuclear arsenal underground at Dimona, uh, 60 feet underground, uh, outside the scrutiny of uh, the International Atomic Energy Agency and anybody else. Uh, and if the North Koreans had wanted that kind of nuclear capability, they would have uh, gone underground, where they obviously have lots of resources. <coughs> so uh, fundamentally, uh, I think what the 1994 crisis, where uh, perhaps uh, during our discussion I can uh, get into the details of our near war in June 1994, but uh, in my book, uh, Korea's Place in the Sun, I have an account uh, of it, and Don Oberdorfer in the two Koreas has a particularly uh, scary account of how close we came to war in June 1994. Uh, instead, uh, Clinton turned to diplomacy and succeeded in freezing the reactor at Yongbyon, uh, and it stayed frozen for eight years under continuous surveillance uh, by closed circuit video uh, seals on the uh, facilities at Yongbyon, and at least two uh, United Nations inspectors on the ground at all time until the North kicked them out uh, a little over a year ago. So it succeeded in a, a achieving a freeze for eight years. The next big event really was the election of, of the longtime dissident Kim Dae-jung, who at his inauguration in 1998 uh, announced a policy of engagement toward North Korea, uh, one that uh, really reversed many of the policies of his predecessor. Uh, in particular, uh, he talked about a long-term period of peaceful coexistence where a reconciliation between North and South would go on while unification would be put off until the next generation. That's often not understood, although it was very plain in his inaugural address uh, on a, a beautiful February day in Seoul in 1998. This particular policy is frequently derided as uh, too idealistic, naive, uh, how can you possibly hope to engage uh, with a regime like that and get anything out of it? But I uh, have thought from the beginning that there were two firm principles of realpolitik behind the Sunshine Policy. The first was that North Korea uh, had not collapsed and was not likely to collapse uh, nearly 10 years after the Berlin Wall fell. Some of my students in the audience have heard me say this before, but one of the few virtues of getting older is to see whether your judgments are any good or not. When uh, someone calls you up and asks you, uh, is North Korea going to collapse? Uh, you have to have an answer, and my answer since the Berlin Wall fell has been no. And the reasons for that have to do with uh, this regime not purely being a communist regime, but being formed in the, uh, in the 
fires of a, a very difficult struggle against Japan in the 1930s uh, by guerrillas who uh, fought in Manchuria, very bitter battles uh, throughout the 1930s. Uh, and then uh, a regime uh, that also was tempered and steeled by one of the most uh, terrible wars of the 20th century, namely uh, the Korean War, in which much of North Korea was completely obliterated. Uh, out of that came not so much a communist state, although it is a communist state, as the most amazing garrison state uh, on the face of the earth, where nearly all adults have significant military experience. Uh, furthermore, unlike uh, the two Germanys, the two Koreas had been uh, at war uh, in the lifetimes of many of the older military people. And I just couldn't imagine North Korea giving up and sort of folding itself up into uh, South Korea with the extension of the Republic of Korea's laws and systems to the North. Uh, one never knows, though. I mean, the future always brings surprises almost every day. Uh, and uh, all I can say is there have been a horde of people saying North Korea is going to collapse at any minute. Nicholas Eberstadt of the American Enterprise Institute uh, must have written that a hundred times since 1989. Uh, and uh, I've been right and he's been wrong. I could be uh, proved wrong tomorrow morning, however. But we're nearly 15 years after the fall of the Berlin Wall. Uh, and in 1998, Kim Dae-jung and the American government had come to the conclusion that since North Korea was not going to collapse, it had to be dealt with as it is, uh, rather than as we would like it to be. Secondly, the North Koreans had made uh, clear throughout the 1990s, mainly in private communications, that they did not oppose the continued stationing of American troops in South Korea if the United States would uh, play the role of an honest broker in Korea and, and ultimately uh, normalize relations with North Korea. Uh, this was something that Kim Jong-il uh, told Kim Dae-jung directly in their summit meeting in June of 2000. But uh, experts like Selig Harrison, uh, one of the very best experts on North Korea, had been hearing this literally since 1991 and 92, privately from the North Koreans. <coughs> this dawned on the Clinton administration in 1998. Uh, and in June of that year, Secretary of Defense William Cohen made a statement that didn't get much attention, but it was an astonishing mouthful. He said that American troops were going to remain in Korea even after unification. Uh, the previous administration, uh, or actually the Clinton administration, had put a 15-year limit in 1995 under the so-called Nye Doctrine on our troops in Korea and Japan. They would be there at least until 2020. But Cohen said uh, there would essentially be an unlimited uh, stationing into the future, even after Korea was unified. And that was a signal that the United States had picked up on this North Korean willingness to pursue in, uh, engagement and reconciliation while American troops remain on the scene. Uh, among other things, China and Japan are both strong countries for the first time in modern history. Usually one is strong when the other is weak. Uh, and that is very threatening uh, to both Koreas, but especially to North Korea. Uh, and suddenly, the fellow from afar, who may not have such direct interests in Korea, uh, looks a little bit different. <clears throat> so the Sunshine Policy and the subsequent engagement policy of the Clinton administration was an attempt to achieve reconciliation and normal normalization of relations on the Korean Peninsula within 
the existing structure of Northeast Asian security within the post-war settlement, so to speak. Uh, and that is another fundamental principle of realpolitik that uh, lay behind the engagement policy. It took North Korea about a year uh, of testing of Kim Dae-jung uh, before they themselves came around to begin some serious changes. And in particular, Kim Jong-il uh, adopted a kind of new diplomacy where he reached out to the European Union, Commonwealth countries, most of our allies, and normalized relations with almost all of them, uh, the exception being the United States uh, and uh, Japan, although there have been talks now for years on normalizing relations with uh, Japan. Uh, Stephen Kinzer perhaps knows this much better than I, but uh, the public's attention span, not to mention even scholars' attention span, uh, are not always so good. Uh, for us now, the watershed in recent memory is, is September 11th. Uh, but if you go back to October uh, 2000 and look at the front page of the New York Times, you'll see the leading general uh, in North Korea, Cho Myung-nok, who is sitting there in his full North Korean regalia in the Oval Office right next to Bill Clinton. And two weeks later, Madeleine Albright, the Secretary of State, is getting off a plane in Pyongyang with a big floppy purple hat and a purple dress. And what was going on there uh, was that the Clinton administration had worked out a deal uh, to buy out North Korea's medium and long-range missiles. And if Bill Clinton uh, would go to Pyongyang for a summit with Kim Jong-il, Kim Jong-il would have entered the missile control technology regime, which would limit his missiles to 300 kilometers or 180 miles, and therefore remove uh, a threat felt particularly badly uh, in Japan. However, the uh, next month was the uh, election that didn't end for five weeks until the Supreme Court decided five to four that George W. Bush had won the election. Uh, Bill Clinton was sitting with his bags packed. Uh, his staff was ready to go to Pyongyang. Uh, they were still ready to go even after the election had been decided, uh, but I later learned from Clinton officials that the Bush administration transition team told them that they would not honor the agreement even if Clinton flew off to Pyongyang and made this agreement with North Korea. So a very big monkey wrench was thrown in uh, the uh, engagement strategy uh, by a change in administrations. Uh, I know that uh, in the media and certainly in the Bush administration, the backsliding uh, from that point in 2000 is blamed on North Korea and not on uh, this change of administration, but uh, I think the change uh, was absolutely dramatic. The Bush administration is often accused of pursuing a, a policy of unilateralism, which I think sometimes is an understatement. Uh, but it's important to understand that the American role in the Pacific since 1945 has been one where unilateralism has been much more important than multilateralism. Uh, Northeast Asia has very few of, of the organizations, alphabet soup organizations like NATO uh, as compared to Europe. Uh, instead, basically the State Department decided what the policy would be and the various foreign ministries in Tokyo, Seoul, Manila uh, would follow suit. Uh, even today, it's hard to say that Japan, has, even though it's the second largest economy in the world, uh, has an independent foreign policy. In some ways, one can understand Bush's policies by saying he took the policies that we'd, we'd followed in East Asia and the Pacific since World War II and directed them to the whole world. Of course, there's more to it than that. 
the axis of evil speech in, in the first State of the Union address in 2002 uh, included North Korea, of course, along with Iran and Iraq, but I, I didn't sense at the time that the North Koreans really took it. it. It made such a huge difference to them. They've been calling us evil since 1945. Uh, their rhetoric, I, I just looked at it again today, the latest blast against the United States. Uh, so uh, rhetoric like that I don't think is particularly uh, important to them. Uh, the turning point really came in September 2002 with the uh, publication of the National Security Council's uh, doctrine of anticipatory self-defense, as Condoleezza Rice called it, or preemptive attacks or preventive war, as I think the policy proved uh, to be with the war in Iraq. The very next month, James Kelly, uh, the Assistant Secretary uh, for East Asia, showed up in Pyongyang and accused the North of having a, a second nuclear program involving highly enriched uranium, courtesy of our friends in Pakistan. But uh, again, without the time to really defend what I'm saying, I think the real question is whether, as with Iraq, we had highly enriched intelligence instead of highly enriched uranium. There are many experts in Washington uh, who are try to be nonpartisan, who do not believe the North Koreans have a program that could lead to a nuclear weapon anytime soon in, in involving enriched uranium. They have imported enriched uranium technology from Pakistan, according to Mr. Kelly, although the evidence on that has never been really presented to uh, the public. <coughs> Experts in Washington last summer began uh, writing articles that were critical uh, of this particular uh, swatch of intelligence, very much along the lines of the pre-war, pre-Iraq war intelligence about uh, Iran's weapons of mass destruction. So I would just say uh, you need a, a huge grain of salt, salt shaker, uh, right by your side when you uh, see the degree to which the Bush administration changed the terms of the debate from didn't we freeze uh, the most dangerous plutonium pro uh, project and wasn't it still frozen in October 2002 to the idea that North Korea uh, has uh, a second program uh, and that North Korea is at the top of the list of of countries for preemptive attack and regime change. Uh, this particular sequence of events scared the hell out of the North Koreans, and their answer was essentially to run, to rerun the program that they did from 1991 to 94 on fast forward. In other words, they kicked out the UN inspectors uh, as they did in 1993. They left the nonproliferation treaty as they did then. Uh, they uh, got control of 8,000 fuel rods that had been frozen in the 1994 agreement that had the wherewithal for maybe five or six, the fuel for five or six atomic bombs, uh, and said that any sanctions against North Korea taken at the UN would be uh, seen as an act of war. This is almost directly out of their playbook uh, from 10 years ago. <coughs> the other thing, though, that is different today from 10 years ago uh, is that South Korea is continuing with an engagement policy and has been going on a different track uh, from the Bush administration. It's been trying to conserve and uh, 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 make survive uh, a policy of engaging North Korea. And in that, they've been helped by China tremendously. Perhaps Russia would come next and from time to time Japan. 
uh, all of them much more interested in talking with North Korea than the U.S. is. Furthermore, the Bush policies, I think, have been the prime background to the so-called anti-Americanism that the press reports from South Korea. I can tell you that South Korean anti-Americanism was ten times worse and more dangerous and volatile in the mid-1980s when downtown Seoul was a virtual armed camp uh, as a result of the perception that the United States had, had supported one dictator after another uh, than it is today. Uh, instead, I think you really have a, a kind of anti-Bushism uh, in South Korea, uh, opposition to specific policies of the Bush administration rather than uh, anti-Americanism as such. I participated in one of the largest anti, so-called anti-American demonstrations in December 2002 in Seoul just before the election of Noh Hyun, and uh, it was a very dignified thing, lots of families involved, people holding candles against the wind. I was prepared to tell them I was from New Zealand if they asked where I came from, uh, <laughs> but there were many Americans there, and I must say uh, I, I had no, no sign of, of hostility toward Americans per se. Essentially where we are today is that the Bush administration has failed in its policy toward North Korea. It's essentially gotten nothing out of it uh, but trouble. We refuse to talk to the North, which puts the North in a position, uh, particularly their hardline generals, of thinking they have no uh, choice but to uh, try and build a nuclear arsenal, particularly if they're a target of preemptive attack. But fundamentally more important is that the President hasn't exercised his own leadership to come out with a coherent policy. The State Department has one policy toward North Korea, really one of engagement. Uh, the Defense Department has one, uh, particularly uh, with Mr. Rumsfeld, the Defense Secretary, which looks toward a regime change uh, in North Korea. Uh, and, and there are hardliners uh, throughout this administration that people I know who have served in previous administrations say are the worst ideologues I've ever seen. And these are moderate people telling me that you cannot reason with these people. Evidence makes no difference to them. They look upon North Korea as, as, as evil, uh, somebody to be dealt with only uh, at the point of a gun. It's a frightening situation, uh, but Bush's indecision so far has made it such that we really don't have a policy toward North Korea. China, for the past near year, has been moving heaven and earth to get talks going. Uh, they sponsored three-way talks in April uh, of last year, six-party talks in August that convened, but that was about the only success that happened there. Uh, and now, uh, at the end of this month, six-party talks in Beijing are going to be held again, the two Koreas, Russia, China, Japan, and the U.S. I hope that those talks will uh, achieve some success, uh, but the way to go uh, is fundamentally the way the Clinton administration did which is to move toward normalization of relations with North Korea, provide aid for people who uh, can't eat in North Korea, in return get North Korea's nuclear programs and missiles bought out directly or indirectly, and then finally we'll have an American ambassador in Pyongyang and for the first time in 60 years have some measure of influence uh, over this regime. So uh, that's what I have to say tonight and I thank you uh, for your attention and be interested to hear. Uh, your comments. Um, as Stephen Kinzer gets up to the podium, I'd like to point out to people who are sitting on the sides, there are 
some seats in the middle, and also acknowledge the work of uh, the staff who put this program together. I forgot to mention them before. Irving Berkner, Aaron Dester, um, Rester, I'm sorry, and Evelyn Tennant of the Center for International Studies, and the students in the Chicago Society, Ian Desai and others who helped get this audience out. And then one last thing I'd like to bother you about. Um, how many, we just like to get an idea of who's here. So how many people here are students at University of Chicago? How many people are faculty and staff? Great represent, that's excellent. And how many people uh, heard about, are not from the campus and heard about this perhaps through the Council on Foreign Relations or other places? Okay, well, welcome. Thank you. And uh, now without further ado, Stephen Kinzer. Thank you. Um, that was a fascinating talk. We have a rare combination of a, a country that nobody knows anything about and, and one of the few people that really is an expert on it. I especially like the last point about, uh, about time we should have an ambassador in, in Pyongyang. I think I've got a nominee. Um, <laughs> that chance. Now, my role here is more or less that of a potted plant, so I'm not going to try to dominate uh, the discussion, but uh, since I uh, did take the time to come out here, I want to uh, impose myself, and I, I'd like to Doug wants to give brief uh, answers, and, and we'll ask you to give brief questions because we, we are under some time pressure. But um, I want to uh, take advantage of my microphone here, and, and I'd like to ask the first two questions. Um, and these will be a little offbeat, I think, uh, which is the way I like to approach these kinds of forum. Uh, let me ask you two things that have run, run through my mind. First of all, I'm going to ask you a more global question, then I'm going to ask you one a little more specific. Today, the United States uh, strides the narrow world like a colossus, to quote the unknown poet. Um, and is, in fact, it is the stated policy of the United States now uh, to prevent any force from arising anywhere in the world, militarily or in any other way, that can challenge our dominance. Now, looking around the world in the long term, um, we can ask ourselves, where might such a challenge come from? Europe, I think, is quite unlikely as a place uh, that will challenge the United States for a variety of reasons. Uh, Russia, probably very far away from being able to do that. Even China, as a single entity, uh, looks like a long-shot candidate, maybe the best individual candidate, but still very, very dubious. However, a combination of China, Japan, and United Korea would be a force at some time in the future that, if it wanted to, uh, could emerge as a, as a real challenge to the United States. Now, these three countries have a long history of hostility. How realistic a prospect is it that in decades to come, they might overcome their uh, hostility and, and emerge as a block or an alliance or, or a combination of states uh, that might ultimately emerge as some kind of a power comparable to the United States? Well, it, it's a question that uh, American strategists have been asking for a number of years. Uh, so it's not so offbeat. Secretary Cohen's remark in 1998 uh, about American troops staying in Korea even after unification, uh, part of the context for that uh, discussions going on inside the Clinton administration, that if Korea were unified, its most likely tendency would be to, if I pull this too much closer, it goes like that, but okay, here we are, uh, that its natural tendency over decades in the future would be uh, to sort of reestablish its old uh, 
relationship with China, not as a tributary state, but as a, a friend and maybe even an ally. And South Korea, let alone North Korea, offers a lot of evidence these days for uh, these future projections. There are thousands of Korean students now studying in China. The United States is right at, at about China's level in terms of uh, countries that South Koreans like. China may even be higher uh, right now. Thank you. Uh, so uh, that relationship between Korea and China, uh, history would tell us that that, that is, is something that uh, we, we might need to think about in the future. China itself has wonderful strategists who uh, write a lot and have been writing a lot about the relationship with the United States. And most of them will say just what you said. The United States is a colossus. It's the hegemonic power of our globe. It's likely to be until at least the middle of this century. So why should we challenge it? Why should we waste a lot of money and time and effort uh, to really seriously challenge uh, the United States? I, I think that's a very sober uh, conclusion on their part. Japan. Uh, is a completely different kettle of fish. I would find it, I mean, I would find it very hard to imagine a co-prosperity sphere uh, involving uh, Japan, Korea, and China aligned against uh, the United States or the West. Uh, it's much more likely that the United States would remain in Korea, whether it's unified or not, and, and be a balancing counterweight to both China and Japan, uh, and especially to keep Japan from going nuclear. Our nuclear umbrella is essential to uh, uh, Japan main, remaining a, essentially a defense dependency of, of the United States. And that is part of the post-war settlement uh, of World War II. And believe me, if that ever changes, that will be an enormous watershed in world affairs if Japan were to independently develop a nuclear capability. As long as it doesn't, then it's not very threatening to China. Uh, and even though Japanese economic power is tremendous compared to China, China has nuclear weapons. Uh, so Japan isn't very threatening in that sense either. So that, that's the way I would answer the question. But um, like I said earlier, tomorrow morning I could be proved wrong. Explaining the past is a little bit easier than predicting the future. Let me ask you one other question now that comes out of my own experience as having worked in many parts of the world. I've had a chance to work. Uh, in countries that are under uh, personalistic leaders in many places. And I've developed a theory that journalists, and perhaps scholars also, sometimes underrate the importance of one factor in understanding how these societies work, and that is the individual psychology of the, the person who happens to be in charge. Um, I think that whether you're trying to understand why Slobodan Milosevic acted the way he did, or why George Bush acts the way he does. You have to understand who they are. You can really learn a lot about them by understanding the way they, these individuals think, in addition to national strategies and many other factors. What can, if you have any uh, sympathy with this theory, what can you tell us about the current leader of North Korea and what your insights into his psychology and worldview might tell us, would help us understand how he behaves and how he might behave in the future? Well, uh, in my new book on North Korea, I have a chapter called The World's First Postmodern Dictator, where I talk about Kim Jong-il as being fundamentally different than his father, uh, who was, uh, well, let's talk about Kim Jong-il. I mean, Kim Jong-il lives uh, the same kind of cloistered uh, imperial palace lifestyle that his, his father did, but he's connected 
to the world in a 21st century way. He has flat panel TV screens all over his villas. He even has them on his personal train. He's on the internet every day. Uh, his aides get him all the latest gadgets from Japan. Uh, he uh, is uh, an aficionado of European fashion and French wine and cognac. Uh, all of this is, of course, particularly disgusting given that uh, something like six million North Koreans uh, have an inadequate diet, uh, but it's nothing new. Uh, there, there is a sense in North Korea of the leader being very much like a king, uh, and the succession to Kim Il-sung was very much like the royal successions that went on for centuries in, uh, in uh, Korea. Uh, and in a recent book by uh, a woman the niece of Kim, Kim Jong-il's, who is now in the West, she says that they even employed the uh, very elderly people who had served the last uh, dynasty in Korea to tell them how to run the royal household, so to speak, uh, in North Korea. So you have a, a curious mix of something completely Korean and traditional, uh, a kingly-type uh, royal family intermarried with all kinds of other families, and then this fellow Kim Jong-il who really uh, almost parodies the old adage that in a dictatorship only the dictator is free. Uh, I think he really would, would like to uh, be able to sun himself uh, you know, on the Riviera and go to Hawaii uh, and uh, be a jet setter. And I, I, I argue, I don't have any evidence for it, but I argue uh, that, that uh, you know, he's cooped up there and really wants a very different North Korea than his father did. But that is not my most serious answer to your question. What, what I think I've learned over the years is that North Korea has an enormous phalanx uh, of people, most of them now elderly, uh, who were connected to the founders of the regime or the sons and daughters of those people. Uh, they are vastly intermarried with one, uh, uh, with now huge extended families, uh, and they, they know how to hold on to power. Uh, and that if Kim Jong-il were assassinated or were to die or something like that, they would arrange some other person at the top, uh, but that the elite itself uh, would, would go on. Uh, and that also is, is something that explains the longevity of the last dynasty in Korea, which lasted 500 years. So I, I try never to underestimate these people. I think they know how to hold on to power for, for better or worse, and it's mostly for worse these days.